The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. Fifty or so years after Herodotus wrote the work that made him famous as both the father of history and the father of lies, another man in ancient Greece, a disgraced Athenian general, picked up where Herodotus had left off, writing an account of the still-in-progress war from his position in exile. His account of the war that was then raging between the city-states of Athens and Sparta has been cited for the past 2,500 years as another form of history, a more scientific form, rooted more in sources and first-hand accounts, and more concerned with the political circumstances of the war and less inclined to report legends and tall tales. That author's name, of course, was Thucydides, and his history of the Peloponnesian War has been admired, praised, and emulated by historians for millennia. Thomas Hobbes was a champion and translator. Friedrich Nietzsche praised Thucydides's courage in the face of reality. And during the Cold War, political scientists and philosophers of all stripes absorbed and debated the lessons and approach of Thucydides as they searched for parallels between Athens and Sparta on the one hand and the Cold War superpowers who were engaged in a geopolitical grapple on the other. But who was Thucydides? What history-writing techniques did he employ? And what is the reading experience like for a general reader today? We'll have the story of Thucydides today on The History of Literature. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. I hope you're all doing well. Here's what we've got for you today. First, a look at Thucydides and an inevitable comparison with Herodotus, so we can get a sense of what those two Greeks set out for us. When we think about writing history, we can put the two of them on opposite ends of a spectrum and try to find our best balance somewhere in the middle, maybe tilt it a little more toward one or the other, depending on our preference. Then, I'm going to give you some podcast news, a little story about an exciting development that affected me, maybe the best news I've ever received. For those of you not into that, feel free to skip on over that part. I'm sure your podcast app will let you do that. Okay, then we'll have our old friend Mike Palindrome on. I read Herodotus and Thucydides years ago. I read all of Herodotus, but with Thucydides, I only ever read excerpts. And a case could be made that you should do that as well if you're coming to Thucydides for the first time or if you're revisiting him after a long break. I read an article online by someone, what was his name, R.B. Lamb. I'm not sure who this is. The article came up in a Google search and he said something, <laughs> quoting him because of his phrase, quote, Thucydides, who succeeds with startlingly, oh, sorry, Thucydides, who succeeds with startling efficacy to make the Peloponnesian War just as boring as Herodotus made Thermopylae entertaining. End quote. So what to do about this conundrum? Thucydides, as important as he is, even for general readers, even for those who are not studying the history of the Peloponnesian War, what should we do? What should I do? Should I recommend that listeners read the whole thing or just parts of it? 
or skip it altogether. Well, I'm not going to say to skip it, because the Pericles funeral oration is one of the great passages in all of literature, and that's not long. It's kind of a an ancient Greece, ancient Greek version of the Gettysburg Address, and the Malian Dialogue might be even better. There's a dramatization online of the Malian Dialogue that I recommend. I think the BBC might have put it together, or it came out of a movie or something. It has Michael Kitchen in it, and that's worth watching. You can find it on YouTube. So it's definitely worth spending some time actually reading at least parts of Thucydides, but should I recommend the whole thing? in 2021. Luckily, we have some perfect test subjects for us, some resident experts. Our old friend Mike Palindrome has recently read both Herodotus and Thucydides in their entirety, along with several dozen other slow readers, friends of his. By slow, I don't mean anything about their intellect, of course. I mean they took their time, limiting themselves to 10 or so pages a day, so they could discuss what they were reading as a group. They do all this on Twitter. So who better than Mike to join us to address that question? How is Thucydides today? What do we gain from reading him? What is insightful? What, if anything, can be skipped? What should readers expect to get out of it if they tackle the whole work? So that's what we have today, and we'll start right now. Thucydides was born in about 460 B.C., and lived for about 60 years. What we know of his life mostly comes from things he said within his own writings, along with a few fair assumptions based on historical context and other references. But there's not much in other sources until much later after his life, and those are treated with some degree of skepticism. Herodotus doesn't mention Thucydides, which of course is to be expected. Herodotus was about 25 years older, and Thucydides does not appear to have been very famous as an author in his time. Anyway, it was not for several generations that his work generally became read and revered. Aristotle was close in time and wrote about everything under the sun. He never mentions Thucydides, at least in the works we have. But by the first century B.C., Thucydides was widely viewed as a great historian, including by men as distinguished as the Roman Cicero. There's a story that Thucydides met Herodotus when he was a child, that he was taken to hear him deliver his stories on history, and that at the age of 10 or 11, he burst into tears, weeping for joy, and saying that this would be his life's work, and that Herodotus came to Thucydides' father and said, this boy has a thirst for knowledge. The story is almost certainly not true. But Thucydides does appear to have read Herodotus, and he seems deliberately to have set himself and historical, his historical methods, his project, apart. He said, quote, to hear this, he was talking, this is in the history of the Peloponnesian War, early on, where Thucydides is talking about his own project. And he says, quote, to hear this history rehearsed, for that there be inserted in it no fables, shall be perhaps not delightful. But he that desires to look into the truth of things done, and which, according to the condition of humanity, may be done again, or at least their like, shall find enough herein to make him think it profitable. And it is compiled rather for an everlasting possession than to be rehearsed for a prize." End quote. What did he mean by that? Well, clearly he seems to be referring to Herodotus here. He's saying, I get it. 
I could be a bestseller. I could tell all these wild stories about barbarians. Don't expect that from me. And of course, there's more to it than that, too. Thucydides is saying this will have more value than to simply titillate. This is a, an early case for history as being the way to, uh, to avoid mistakes in the future. If you don't want to repeat the bad things that happen in, in history, you have to get things right. You have to know why they happened so you can make good judgments. And he was sort of right in a way. There's something valuable about scientific history or the impartial style of history that he was trying to achieve. The two men had different projects. Let's take a a minute or two to explore that further. You may recall that Herodotus wrote from what we might call a humanist point of view. If someone in another culture told him their myth or their legend or he heard a fanciful story, he passed it along. He didn't vouch for it as true, necessarily, but he believed that it had a place in a book of history, and so he included it without making too much about its probability or denying the veracity of it. We see the minds of the people that way, the people that he was talking to, the people from those cultures. We hear what stories they're telling each other. We get some insight into that. It's much closer to what we would view today as the job of a novelist. We wouldn't expect a historian to do something similar. They might more clearly, they might include those stories, but they would more clearly designate such a story as not true or a myth believed by the locals, or they might not even consider that story worthy of inclusion in their history at all. A typical history book today might not even really talk about the people and their beliefs or their personalities or their idiosyncrasies that much. It wouldn't. A history book today might not stoop to rumor and gossip and amusing anecdotes unless those had become part of the public profile of the person if it affected their job in some way, like an affair that brings down a government official or something like that. Instead, we might have a focus on why a country went to war. Because they needed resources or because they were invaded, they felt slighted. There were ethnic tensions with their neighbors. Shifting alliances had left them no choice. There was a rising sense of nationalism fueled by the propaganda of their leaders. A historian would view these things, try to untangle them, try to weigh them. But by standing apart, impartial, discussing the elections or the leadership or the effectiveness of the government, the strength it had over its people or... It's shaky grasp. And the historian today, the modern historian, would say, here's why this leader and this nation took this action. Here's why they won the battle or lost it. Here's why they signed the treaty they signed. Here's why the people overthrew their government and demanded a new one. All those questions, trying to find the reasons for historical events and tying them to human psychology to say, for example, that a prosperous country with a powerful military, might act in its own self-interest. It might expand because it needed the land. It might conquer because it could. It might view the promulgation of its way of life, its system of government, as an end that justifies certain means. And that it's the nature of a nation-state to do so, because at bottom, that's the the nature of us as individuals. We humans are like this, too. All of that... All that I just described grows out of Thucydides and his way of looking at the world. His historical method 
has been copied by people on all sides of the political spectrum. But the people who are drawn to him and his thinking and his political views tend to be those who follow real politique. The Henry Kissingers of the world, the Machiavellis and Leo Straussians who say, look, we might want the world to be a certain way, but it isn't. Let's deal with how the world actually is. As we will see, this becomes quite riveting in Thucydides when we come to the Malian Dialogue, a great political science exposition. The positions taken in that dialogue feel as fresh to me today as they likely did 2,500 years ago to the first readers of Thucydides. But let's talk more about Thucydides and his life. We'll take our first break and come back with that after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. As I mentioned before, most of what we know of the life of Thucydides comes from the writer himself. He tells us he was an Athenian and that his father's name was Olorus, which Herodotus himself had said was a Thracian name. His family owned some gold mines in Thrace, which was near the island of Thassos. When he was a young man, he survived the plague, and then, because of his wealth and status, he became a general. And in 424 BC, he was sent to Thassos to battle the Spartans who had recently invaded that island. Let me pause here and say that the conflict between the Athenians and Spartans is endlessly fascinating, at least to me. The Persian Wars were fought over the course of 40 years or so as the Greeks battled the Persians. Athens and Sparta were allies in that war. But there were already some cracks in the alliance. These powerful city-states had different ways of looking at the world, and it often came to a head. After the war, Athens and Sparta were not getting along, and by the time Thucydides had become a general, the Athenians and Spartans were at war, which was to last for several decades with some interruptions. Athens and Sparta were the two leading city-states in Greece then, and they both had alliances with other city-states. 
Thucydides saw the importance of this conflict, both because of the power that hung in the balance, but also because of the suffering that the war would call would cause, and he was correct in that prediction, as the war dragged on for several decades, engulfing all of Greece and shifting power from Athens to Sparta. Athens and Sparta are also interesting to me because they're such different approaches to society. Athens was a naval power, and their allies tended to be coastal cities and islands around the Aegean Sea. Sparta was inland, and they and their allies tended to have a stronger army. Athens was wealthy, thanks to the tributes they received from their allies, or maybe you could call them subjects. This was an empire. But for me, what's most interesting are the differences in political structure, in the way they constructed their societies. And since this is not a a podcast about military history or ancient history, but one about literature and narratives, I'm also fascinated by the way the differences between the two societies have excited the imaginations of writers and thinkers throughout history. Sparta was oligarchical, ruled by a handful of powerful elites. Athens was a democracy with a political system shared by the masses. Athens was more modern by today's standards. They valued freedom and choice. Education was widely available to free Athenians, and pursuits of the arts and sciences were encouraged. In Sparta, military service was mandatory, and obedience was of paramount importance. Loyalty to the state and the army. Sparta's militaristic lifestyle was pretty dramatic. Weak babies were left to die. At age seven, boys left home and lived together in barracks. They made their own clothes and prepared their own meals. They were required to get married at age 20, but they were immediately impressed into the army and didn't live with their wives until they were 30. And then they served in the military until they were 60. They ate the same food day after day. Conditions were severe, Spartan women, meanwhile, were left at home to run the society while their husbands served in the army. These women weren't allowed to vote or participate in the government of Sparta, but they could own land, and they devoted themselves to the army in their own way. They told their sons, come home with your shield or upon it. They oversaw the slaves who tended the fields and did chores, and they lived without jewelry or fancy clothes. The whole existence of Sparta was designed around being powerful militarily. Athens, meanwhile, had to compete with this without subjecting its citizens to such a severe lifestyle. Instead, people were free, other than the slaves, of course. I'm really talking about free Athenian citizens versus free Spartan citizens here. Athenians had duties. They had jury duty. They had to help run the city. They paid taxes, and they had to serve in the military, but they could also choose their lifestyle, and they were free to debate public policy. That's not to say that they were less aggressive than the Spartans. In fact, Sparta was known for being the protector of Greece, and it seems as though Athens actually triggered the Peloponnesian War by their expansive behavior. But you can see why Americans looked to Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War during the Cold War. They believed they were engaged with the Soviet Empire, which was viewed as a fearsome opponent that had reduced freedoms, but in exchange had more military discipline. Maybe that was going to prevail. Meanwhile, America had its freedoms and opportunities 
was looser with their citizenry, but somehow they would need to compete. And the, the hope was that they could do so by persuading the world that theirs was a better path and maybe the growth and energy of a dynamic society would be better when it came time to fighting also. Maybe there would be more prosperity to draw upon or more technological innovation, or maybe the soldiers would be better because they had had that freedom and that education. Maybe they'd be more willing to fight or uh, more capable more devoted because of their ideals or because their training would make them more flexible or intelligent or something, that they would be smart human soldiers instead of robots. In Rocky IV, Rocky is like Athens and Drago is Sparta. That's the world that America created for itself, the narrative America told itself. And they looked to Thucydides and the Peloponnesian War to sort it all out. They were trying to learn from Thucydides the way that Thucydides had said, I'm telling you a history that you will be able to learn from. But I was at the point in the life of Thucydides when he, a general, was sent to the island of Thassos. Sparta had invaded, and the Athenian commander in charge called for help. Thucydides was on his way there when the Spartan general offered moderate terms, and the people surrendered, switching their alliance from Athens to Sparta. Although Thucydides claimed that it had all happened before he arrived and was not his fault, it was viewed by the Athenians as an awful loss, and Thucydides was condemned for it and exiled. What happened next for Thucydides had a profound influence on the book he was going to write. He believed that the war, the ongoing war, was going to be important, a worthy subject for him to write about, and he had seen firsthand how historical events can be misunderstood and the consequences that that can have for individuals. He himself had been exiled based on a misunderstanding of circumstances. His idea then was that he would look at history in order to know what he called the exact truth about events. He also believed that his exile helped his ability to write history, as he was not immersed in Athens, but outside of it, where he was able to mingle and communicate with people on both sides of the conflict. This is the perspective that historians even today try to adopt. It's viewed as generally a good thing to try to get beyond one's personal biases as much as one can. Accuracy and factual detail and attempting to explain events with something approaching ob objectivity are crucial to a modern historian. And Thucydides is their model for this in a way that Herodotus can't be. But the danger here is, first of all, as we know, it's hard to be truly objective. But even setting that aside, there's a danger that what you write will be dull. We don't need Herodotus's myths and tall tales in order to be interesting, but powerful narratives, explanations, stories, what happened and why, and who made it happen and what drove them. That helps turn history from an endless stream of news accounts into something more like literature. It's not just lists of facts, but processing and analyzing and interpreting and presenting those facts, getting the perspective right, explaining the events to us, making it dramatic, giving us a sense of the stakes, describing a comprehensive and complex set of events in a way that synthesizes those events for us. Thucydides doesn't always get there. He does try, but he doesn't always get there. And we can excuse his failings in one sense, 
because there was a big problem that he couldn't overcome, and nobody could have, really. He was writing about history as it happened. The war was not over. So as much as he may have wanted to put a particular battle in perspective, or a decision, or an event, those things are hard or impossible to put in perspective before time has passed, and you can see what is what really happened and try to figure out why and whether it mattered or whether it didn't. There's no way to get a perspective, to get any perspective on an event's importance if you're also predicting what's going to happen next in order to try to weigh that importance. Maybe your event will change everything in the world, and maybe it won't. Maybe it should be the leading chapter, the key turning point, and maybe it shouldn't even be a footnote. You don't know until time has passed, and and anyway... Thucydides, his history, this shows you the problem that he was facing. The history ends in mid-passage. The war was still ongoing, and it's possible that Thucydides might even have died or been killed before the war had even ended. Now, I said we were going to talk about my great podcasting moment, but we're not going to have time for that. We will save it for another day. Instead, I want to talk about the two famous passages in Thucydides' that are the most often read and discussed. The first is the funeral oration of Pericles. This is often compared with the Gettysburg Address, although it's something like ten times longer, with Pericles playing the part of Abraham Lincoln, praising the dead on the battlefield and discussing their contribution to the nation, and using that opportunity to talk about the values of the nation, the reason why these men gave their lives. For Lincoln... They had given them for the new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. For Pericles, who was a Greek statesman and general at the time, the praise was for Athens, and he says, Our laws afford equal justice to all, and the freedom we have in government extends also to our ordinary life. He's contrasting the values of equality and openness to those of Sparta, the militaristic society. And he says, We throw open our city to the world. We don't exclude foreigners, which might even hurt us at times, as our enemies can learn what we're up to. They can see our strengths and weaknesses. But we believe in this cross-fertilization of ideas. And we don't have a rigid society where we make everyone do what the government says, but one where people are free to advance regardless of class. Status doesn't interfere with merit in Athens, and even ordinary citizens are called upon to participate in juries and decision-making. This is what's so exciting to people who want to live free, to believe that living free has advantages. We want everyone to think and choose for themselves and be happy and to seek wealth and to gain wealth. And to live not just like drones out of duty to the state, but to live like free individuals and to make the state stronger that way. That's what Pericles is arguing for. And then he says, quote, Having judged that to be happy means to be free, and to be free means to be brave. Do not shy away from the risks of war. End quote. Now, Thucydides presents this oration word for word. And there's no reason to think that the speech wasn't what Pericles said in essence, but Thucydides wasn't there. There's also no reason to think that Thucydides somehow got a a word-for-word copy. The ideas may have been Pericles, but the text, 
as it's written, is probably Thucydides. He gets some credit for it. It's a beautiful speech, and it's inspiring, and it does give you this feeling that this is what Athens believed itself to be, and it sets the tone for all of us. What is our society? Who leads us and why? Why do we give our loyalty or our honor or our lives for this nation? What do we value and what makes us value it? These are questions that are raised by this oration. And in this respect, Athens is wonderful. And Thucydides, at least in the oration, and Thucydides, who's not always a fan of Athens and democracy, as might be expected for someone who was run out of town by the opinion of the masses, and uninformed opinion in his view. For him, it probably seemed more like democracy was more like an unwashed mob, at least when it came to the story of his perceived failure, which he insisted had not actually been his fault. Maybe a handful of intelligent leaders would have decided differently. But Thucydides admires Pericles, clearly, and this speech sort of stands for the point that a free and open society can be just as strong, if not stronger, than a militaristic one. But it also stands for the idea that these are questions to ask. And they matter. And when we write about history, we are exploring these kinds of ideas. The Malian dialogue goes even further in this direction. In this fascinating exchange, the Athenians talked to the inhabitants of the island of Milos, which, who had historically been aligned with Sparta, but who were hoping to remain neutral during the Peloponnesian War. The Athenians invaded Milos and demanded that the residents surrender and pay tribute to Athens, with the alternative being annihilation. The Malians refused. After a siege, the Malians surrendered, and the Athenians executed the men and took the women and children as slaves. It's a shocking result, as we like to think that surrender will lead to peace and harmony and some kind of treaty, some kind of humane treatment. If someone wants to remain neutral, why not? What's wrong with that? Avoiding war, that should be an option. That should be a choice, shouldn't it? Well, the Athenians took a view that is probably more common in wartime. Hey, they said, we gave you a choice. We're fighting for our lives here. You could have surrendered when it was easy. Instead, you refused you made it hard on us. We had to lay siege to your city. You only surrendered because you had to, and now you're going to pay for making us do that. If we let you do this, every single one of these islands who pay us tribute are going to do the same thing. They'll say, no, no, we want to be neutral, and we'll have to do all the work in order to get the tribute that we want. Reminds me a little bit of prosecutors cutting deals with defendants. When they say, hey, jury trials take a long time and juries are always unpredictable, so we might spend a whole lot of time and energy on this trial and we could still lose. That's a risk. We can't afford for every single criminal defendant to hold out and put us to our paces, make us take this risk and refuse to settle with us. So we'll offer you a deal now, but if you make us take you to court... That deal is going to be off the table. We're going to go for the maximum sentence. We're not going to give you the same deal at the end of a trial because we can't afford to have every defendant try their luck with a trial. And then if things don't go well, they end up getting the same terms they could have had at the start. The prosecutor would no doubt say the same thing as the Athenians. Say, hey, we're just being real here. This isn't about our generosity. This isn't about 
our morality. This isn't about our humanity. This is about the resources we have, the job that we have before us, the goal that we're trying to accomplish. And this is about our use of resources and about setting an example. It might not seem generous to you, but we think it's reasonable. You are making the choice. We're giving you the choice to make it. We didn't make the rules. You'd do the same thing if you were us. The Malian dialogue is where Thucydides has the Athenians and Malians argue this out before the refusal. The Malians are arguing quite plausibly and reasonably for neutrality. The Athenians are arguing for their point of view, and both sides make excellent points. The Athenians say, we're here, we're stronger, there's not much to discuss, we don't want to waste time. We are the powerful party. You have no choice. We will set the terms. You can agree or refuse. That's your choice. This isn't a negotiation. This isn't a a moral issue, so don't appeal to our morality because this is war. Morality is just a bunch of words. We're trying to survive. Might makes right, or as they put it, quote, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must, end quote. They say, look, if we let you go and don't make you pay tribute, nobody's going to want to pay tribute and everyone will think we're weak. And when they stop paying us, We will be weak. We can't afford to have you and your neutrality out there as an example. We'll look wishy-washy, and maybe our subjects will think that we couldn't conquer you because we were too weak. And that might embolden them to defy us as well. The Malians, for their part, say, Hey, Athens, there's value for you in respecting neutrality. You're going to look like warmongers. And the Athenians say, Too bad. We'd rather look strong than weak. It's in our self-interest. And then there are all these smaller arguments and counter-arguments. The Malians try everything. They say the Spartans might come. They, They might win, and because they might win, they might regret not trying. They say that the gods will favor them because they're morally justified. And Athens bats all of these away. They have responses for all these arguments, and in fact, they're somewhat shocked that the Malians are even arguing, that they don't see the truth of this matter, which is that none of these arguments are practical. That's, that's the Athenian view, that the practical reality is that a strong country conquers and a weak country accepts it, especially if the terms offered are favorable. There's no real reason to feel bad about this. It's not immoral or a failure or cowardly. It's just realism. It's such a great dialogue, and it has influenced a lot of politicians and political philosophers ever since. I read one account suggesting that Machiavelli would not have written his book The Prince had Thucydides been widely available in the Italy of his day, because the Malian dialogue essentially sets forth the primary argument that Machiavelli was making. There might be some value in appearing to be moral or just or fair or to say that you're on the side of the gods or that you're being generous or that you've been reasonable. But actually, being those things might be a different story. In other words, it might be best to appear to be fair even if you actually aren't. What matters is not your morality or immorality. That's not even the right question. What matters is power and what power can get away with, and what the results of the exercising of that power will be. If the best thing to do is appear to be generous, but to secretly be not generous, that's what you should do. 
A lot of hard-nosed politicians have taken this view, especially when it comes to foreign nations and especially during times of conflict. Check out the video with Michael Kitchen on YouTube with the Malian Dialogue. It's about five or six minutes long, but it's a riveting little exchange. So those are the two famous passages to enjoy from our author today, Thucydides. But what about all the rest? What's it like to read Herodotus and Thucydides back to back? We will hear from our old friend Mike Palindrome, who did just that, along with 50 or so of his fellow travelers, after this. Okay, joining me now is our old friend Mike Palindrome, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, who's also been an active online reader as part of the Tolstoy Together Project and the Proust Together Project and several others. You can find them via their hashtags on Twitter or through Mike's account at LiteratureSC. He's here today to bring us the news from the world of reading Thucydides. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. So what was the group's take on Thucydides and his famous The History of the Peloponnesian War? I think we were confused. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I... I, you know, we, we had a couple of uh, uh, stalwarts who had read it before mm-hmm. and were really big readers of history. And they were really they were very useful. But I think we had such momentum after reading uh, Herodotus. Right. Well, that's the and, natural, you know, they're kind of the, the Plato and Aristotle of history. That's sort of yin and yang. Yeah. So we, we sort of love the the substance in the Peloponnesian War, but not necessarily the the writing style. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was almost kind of some people called it like a lack of style and a lack of humor. Mm. And it may have been the translation I was reading. I mean, I read the Hobbes translation just because I mean the opportunity to read Hobbes again, <laughs> <laughs> even if he's translating it. I mean, um, but a number of people read the landmark Thucydides. I, I forget who the translator is, but it, it had many more maps and mm. little little summaries, little tongue-in-cheek summaries. I wonder if I would have enjoyed it more have, reading the, the landmark Thucydides. And landmark also does a landmark Herodotus, but the landmark Thucydides had little summaries on the side, like, you know, the bored Athenian soldiers suddenly and impulsively decide to build a fort. <laughs> <laughs> so they were clearly having fun yeah know, right <laughs> writing some of the stuff um, right so for your group the comparisons with herodotus must have been inevitable yeah i mean we we sort of had herodotus winning in all categories mm, so much more fun yeah really fun really he was kind of herodotus is sort of impatient mm-hmm. um kind of syncs really well with like a modern sensibility. Yeah. Um, right. Like switching gears and always coming up with like the, the quirkiest story. And, you know, we, we did agree that Thucydides won in terms of political focus and military tactics. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, but we were, we were all glad to read it because it's sort of a long project for a core group of us readers. We're, we're trying to read a bunch of ancient and classical works. We're going to read Suetonius oh. at some point. And we, we just finished I, Claudius by Robert Graves. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, let's save that. Maybe we'll do a show on that, too. That's such a good book. So for Thucydides, would you recommend reading 
a history of the Peloponnesian War straight through, or uh, I think when I was in college, I read excerpts of it, which I feel like I got quite a bit out of it. On the one hand, I think you should just read excerpts. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I feel like because I had to suffer through the whole thing, (laughs) you too, maybe suffer isn't the right word, but you too (laughs) should read the whole thing to feel kind of the relentlessness of the battles. I mean, yeah. and, And this is one instance where there was some humor, like he would have this incredible battle scene and, you know, they would collect the dead and they would build a trophy on the site of the battle. And then at the end, Thucydides would add, and that's how the summer ended. (laughs) (laughs) It was was almost like there were so many battles that he just couldn't figure out a way to link them. He would just like (laughs) refer to like (laughs) the calendar. You would say constantly like, this was the ninth year of the Peloponnesian War. This was the 13th year. Yeah, Um, right. But I, I, yeah, I mean, there is something about the rhythm that you get reading the whole thing, uh, obviously, with with any older work or a classical work. I think, you know, like reading Dante, I mean, you, you could read Dante in excerpts, but I think reading the whole thing, you really get into the rhythm. You feel the rhythm of yeah. it. Yeah. There was also something a little bit strange about his project, that not a lot of people have set out to do what he was doing, writing as history and as a kind of definitive version of history, something that was not that old and even still kind of ongoing. Events were happening that were going into later volumes of the book. Yeah, I mean, it, uh, you know, it, it famously ends abruptly. You mm. know, it's, um, it, yeah. it's still going on. He just, um, and there's a lot of speculation why it ends like that. But, I mean, he, he was, he, he appears in the fi- fighting it's a, uh, it's kind of wild. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's like Sal- Salinger landing, you know, on D-Day and like <laughs> trying to like describe what's happening. Yeah. And he was, uh, and he kind of messed up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought that was maybe another Thucydides because I was like, really? Yeah. So, um, but I mean, the, reading the excerpt back to the excerpts approach, like you know, there, there's the Pericles speech, yeah, the, right. the the funeral oration, and yeah. there's the the Melian dialogue, yeah. where you know, so Melus, a neutral city, you know, doesn't want to join the Athenian alliance, and the Athenians are like, you know, the Melians are like, how can it be profitable for us to serve you? And Athenians are like, by not destroying you, you benefit. and it's 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 the way it's told you know as the reader you know the and the athenians are aware of this too the way they sound it's not exactly the most logical argument they're making right and it turns out to be kind of like a a distortion of power and a bullying yeah and that i think is really one of the high points yeah of, of the book and for thucydides to have captured that yeah. And to have that long view of the way power works. I, I mean, I think that's it, that that was really stunning. All of us were just like, oh, my gosh, it was worth waiting through all that all that battle description. And yeah, that, <laughs> it is so good. And, and it covers all the different little angles. I mean, Thucydides kind of invented the dial. It's not like he was 
it's not a transcription. He was you know, he was the author of it, but he covers all of the little nuances of that particular argument. And it really is, uh, you know, you read it and you feel like he's anticipating all the thing, all the objections that you yourself might make. And he's, yeah, he's exactly. giving both sides like the full argument and they're just, it's just this clash of values. And then you, should I, should I spoiler alert? Should I say what happens at the end? Yeah. The Athenians massacre all the men <laughs> yeah. of Milos and they, they sell the women and children into slavery. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the, the things we, we really discussed as a group is just trying to figure out where our sympathies should lie mm. because the Spartans are cruel. And sometimes there's some argument that the Spartans are only cruel in response to the Athenian cruelty. Right. And there's all this alliance building that's incredibly convoluted and hard to follow. And you have leaders who are flipping sides. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah. but yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, it, it's fascinating the names of the people and the, the lands because the Thucydides assumed a lot of knowledge on mm. the part of the reader. Mm -hmm. He goes back and forth in a way that it can be very confusing to the, the modern reader. Yeah. Did, I can remember re when reading this in college, everyone was talking about it in the context of the Cold War and Athens mm. was like America and Sparta was like the Soviet Union. Did you find yourself comparing the Greeks to anything contemporary or... Were you traveling back in time? When you say you didn't know who to root for exactly, were you looking at it as Athens or as sort of a, a a type? I think, you know, just it seems like with Herodotus, there was, you know, a good guy and a bad guy mm -hmm. in, in all the anecdotes. And here, and I guess this is how, why they say it's kind of like the birth of the realist school of international relations, mm -hmm. you know, Nations don't have like a clear ideology, you know, they're sort of just acting out of self-interest to preserve themselves. And yeah, I mean, I was reading about how Stephen Bannon was a big fan of Thucydides, which kind of turned my stomach. Um, <laughs> and he, right. he, he said that the Thucydides trap is this idea that two countries here in Bannon's instance, the U.S. and China, are going to enter into a war that neither side wants. On the one hand, that modern example, we're supposed to think of America as, as the good guy. But I think there's something about how they're both not as good or as bad as we want them to, to be. They're yeah. kind of just like the two biggest players. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, we, I think nobody could clearly say like, well, you know, the, the Spartans were upstarts and we should be on their side because they're they're the underdog because right. th there was such a land power just as much as the athenians would scorch the the earth i mean mm. they, the minute they, they there are a couple instances where they attack a land the, a territory and the people have fled mm. so there's nobody to like rape or torture or kill and they're just confused <laughs> they're just so they're just so used to behaving in this like right you know this this campaign of annihilation and they find the land empty 
Yeah. It was a challenge keeping track of all the names, mm. all the lands. And I think on top of that is this feeling that each group was acting so pragmatically that you didn't have a clear good guy or bad guy in your head. Yeah. And maybe that that's kind of like a a more objective view of the way we think of than the way we think today of war. We're always like, well, they they started it. Yeah. And here, like once whoever started it, once you're into your tenth or fifteenth year of war, I mean, does it does it even matter? Yeah, those are always the kind of tough questions that America has faced. Those the the Athenians saying well, in Pericles, when he's giving the funeral oration, he's talking about the great things that the city has done and, and what they stand for. And, you know, we're the open city and we're the ones that allow, uh, you know, people to visit and, and learn from us, even if that means they'll get an advantage that we're giving away. And America liked to view itself that way. You know, we're the ones that are pro-democracy and we believe in educating everyone and we're not just trying to build a military here and we're 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 we believe in you know the clash of ideas and all of that kind of thing but then there was a real streak like the athenians had with the Malians of yeah we're going to do this because powerful countries do what they can and the weak suffer what they must that's just how it's going to be that's how it is you're naive if you think it's anything else. We can, we can pretend that it's that there's a a moral reason for doing this, but the fact is that really doesn't matter. We're doing it because we're powerful and it's something we want to do. As a very cynical person, I didn't think that was you know. It took me a moment to realize that this was kind of a profound way of orating because I just assume that politicians are two-faced and full of crap mm. but but i think it was something like boy this is you know fifth century i mean bc and it's like wow you know the, the 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 way you convince yourself and you convince people to be subjugated yeah. it, it's something else i mean um the athenians would go around assassinating rivals i mean there's there's stuff in the peloponnesian war that you sort of forget what it take what it, what it takes to keep power mm. the story of corfu there was a civil war and the oligarchs and the Demo democrats were fighting against each other and they were each appealing to athens or sparta and you can kind of see the machine the political machinery of what it takes to to stay in power and i mean that kind of stuff was fascinating mm. yeah and that is, I guess, kind of how Thucydides, I mean, did you sort of admire him as the father of of realistic history or the scientific history or the true father of history? Did you kind of, did part of you feel like, well, Thucydides, you know, Herodotus, although Herodotus has, has gotten a lot of credit for things that he was kind of getting right, you know, he was much more fanciful and and willing to pass along, you know, some some myths and some tall tales, but Thucydides seems to have given himself the assignment of being as you know close to reality as possible. I mean, having read Thucydides now, I think you had asked me before, did I consider Herodotus fiction or history or memoir? And 
I mean, having read Thucydides now, it does seem like Herodotus is almost like a is telling fables. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, extremely entertaining fables, but you know, Thucydides this twenty five hundred years ago. I mean, the, but this reads the way you expect a history book to read. Yeah. Which is astonishing. Yeah. Right. And you wonder, is it, is it just that what's astonishing, I'm not a historiographer and I would have to read what other people have written to kind of have a, an informed opinion on this, but you wonder if, if he was, the impressive thing is that he was uh, so early in doing that, or if it actually is, he invented it and without him, we wouldn't recognize history and it wouldn't have people who have followed in his path are the ones that have made history the thing that we come to think of it as. Yeah, I mean, I think it definitely is a blueprint mm -hmm. of the way a history should be. I mean, the appearance of dialogue and speeches is beautifully placed. Yeah. And he doesn't overdo it. He knows that it almost um, detracts from the authenticity of a history book. Mm -hmm. Have too much, like kind of eyewitness testimony. Yeah. And maybe this the, the reason why our group sort of thought of it as a lack of style is because we're mainly a fiction group, and so we we probably you know re reacted in a certain way because we were expecting a little bit more like Herodotus. Mm. And so maybe it would have been a different reaction if, if we had first read like The Power Broker by Robert Caro and yeah. then read this. Right. So did reading this make you want to read anything else in particular? You mentioned Suetonius, but was there, did you, when you finished, did you feel like you wanted to read more history or more Greeks or take a break from that and move on to something else for a while? I think people wanted to read more Herodotus, like something like Herodotus. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, but we had a we had a great time reading I Claudius, which we can talk about in another. Which apparently yeah. Robert Graves wrote it based on Suetonius. Mm, right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. And have you seen uh, film versions of I Claudius? No, I have not, but everyone was recommending it. They, yeah, they. The the BBC one, the Derek yeah. Jacobi, yeah, that is really good. And it's it's very bare bones. I mean, it's almost, my memory of it is it, it looking like Charlie Rose used to look. You know, that's about, <laughs> that's about as much scenery as they have. Like there's rooms where they're just, you know, it's just the characters in a, against a black backdrop. But it, um, I may be misremembering that, maybe my. My television was <laughs> was on the fritz a little bit there, but uh, <laughs> it was a while ago that I watched it. But it it is Derek Jacobi is fantastic, and all the acting is great. It's it's pretty old. I think it's I think it came out in the seventies, but uh, it was uh, something I would watch again. It, it you know um, it reading this made me kind of think more about the classics mm, actually mm -hmm. i was reading a uh I, I don't read the new york times i don't know if you if i've mentioned this before but i, I just find that I, i've started to in my old age think that if the the writer's name doesn't matter then i don't i don't want to read it <laughs> and i think that wipes out a lot of 
um, journalism. <laughs> yeah. But I did read a long piece about the Princeton professor of classics, Danielle Padilla Parada, Peralta. Mm. Mm-hmm. I don't know about this. If you know about this, um, this incident he had with a scholar, Mary Frances Williams at the society of classical studies conference, mm. obviously like a very hip place. Yeah. Um, where, he spoke openly again he's a pr- princeton professor of classics um originally from i want to say the dominican republic hopefully i'm right um he he talked openly about the harm caused by classics mm. and how classics perpetuated racism yeah and that we should cancel classics departments um which universities have started to do so by us reassigning classics professors to other departments, mm, like history, or, or history or history or anthropology, language. yeah, right, yeah, which you know I'm not necessarily against that, but um, Mary Frances Williams, I guess, took umbrage to this whole idea that classics is to blame, and so there was this big de- de- debate, and um, it kind of uncovered this unfortunate way that white supremacists mm. have been uh aping symbols of the roman state and yeah talking right. about how, like every month is white history month and yeah it made me think of how like classics is such a narrow focus which is kind of what this professor this princeton professor Danielle peralta's point is that there's so many suppressed stories that existed at the time but haven't made their way through because they're disturbing and they're not part of this great veneration of classical history Mm. right i mean i think i think there's probably like a wealth of writing from that time period that is yet to be written that that was um could be fascinating in the next like 50 years yeah and I remember thinking that when I was, I can't remember now if I did an episode, maybe not a full episode on Virgil, but I remember thinking if this was happening today and our Republic had fallen in favor of an emperor who then kind of handpicked his successor, who was like a, a an adopted nephew or something. And <laughs> that person then had like a, a house poet who was writing a, a, a poem to glorify his empire. Uh, I don't think I'd be such a fan of that poet. And <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd hang his picture on my wall or anything, you know, and yet he's come down to us as, you know, Virgil, one of the great poets of antiquity. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, I guess we're far enough away from it that I don't, you know, tend to mind. I I do think with classics, it probably depends on the way that it's taught more than the actual content. I mean, you can always yeah. teach something so that it it has values that are consistent with what you want to promote. But uh, it sounds like maybe the classics department has kind of drawn a, a type of person that is not uh, willing to use the text in that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it really made me challenge this assumption i've always had which is that it's come down to us because that's all there was Mm. yeah instead of it was actually selected by somebody 
and it's been it's they keep selecting it you know that's yeah, right. uh and i've said this before in other episodes there's plenty of time to read and so you should read thucydides yeah right <laughs> and plato you could say that about plato as well you know that you read him and you think uh boy this guy is he's he's not a democrat uh, and I don't yeah. mean Democrat versus Republican. I mean he's 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 kind of against democracy here. He's he's uh, in favor of a uh, rule by elites, but he's still worth reading. He's still uh, I still have a soft spot in my heart for good old Plato. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he's glad to know that Jack Wilson is uh, giving him thumbs up. Okay, let's leave things there, Mike. As always, thanks for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. Hey, there we go. My thanks to Mike Palindrome, of course, and all the people who have participated along with him in the online reads of, oh, wow, who have they covered now? Proust and Anna Karenina and War and Peace and I, Claudius, and many others as well. You can join them in their next project by following at LiteratureSC on Twitter. We are the History of Literature podcast people along here, here along with LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate, www.thepodglomerate.com. I'm sorry to all of you emailers. I'm trying to respond, but a million emails behind. I will try to do better. Very grateful to all of you for jumping in and sending me your thoughts and letting me know how you're doing. It's hard for me to respond to each and every request for recommendations or ideas, but I do try, and at the very least, I enjoy hearing from you. I hope you and your loved ones are all doing well. I know these are hard times, and I hope you have some good books in your future with a good state of mind in which to read them. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.